Thanks, Garrett. You're good at games. Good at worship leading, too. Um, the top three Christmas movies, he only mentioned one of the top three. It's a Wonderful Life is number one, eh, maybe number two. The top one is White Christmas. I can't believe we didn't have a quote from White Christmas. And then, one of my favorites is Christmas in Connecticut. You like that one? Heard of it? How many of you heard of Barbara Stanwyck? You know that? Uh, you have to be over my, my age. Okay. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 1 and 2. I think this will help if you can actually see. We'll have the verses up on the text, but I, up on the screen, but I think it'll help for you to see how this is all put together. We look at this. Uh, there was a violinist that decided one day to play outside of a subway station in Washington, D.C., and hidden cameras were set up to observe what would happen. It was just kind of a test. And he played some of the most inspiring classical music ever written, and the commuters just walked on by, uh, by and by and large ignored him. The violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the most famous violinists in the world, and the violin he was playing was a Stradivarius built in 1713, made from a combination of the finest spruce, maple, and willow, and built to such perfection that if you shaved off a millimeter of wood anywhere on that violin, it would unbalance the sound. That violin had been purchased at that time for $3.5 million. Joshua Bell normally plays in great concert halls like Moscow, St. Petersburg, Vienna, Prague, London, Paris, New York, and Toronto. He earns up to $1,000 a minute for playing. But on this particular morning, he walked into the exit of a subway station, positioned himself against a wall next to a trash basket, wearing jeans, a long sleeve t-shirt, and a baseball cap. He removed his Stradivarius from the case and placed the case open on the ground in front of him. He threw in some change to uh, uh, prime the pump for donations, and he played for 47 minutes. Over a thousand people passed him. Hardly anyone stopped to listen. 27 people put money into his violin case, a total of $31.21, and only one person recognized him. No one expected a famous and proficient violinist to be playing for three and a half, playing a $3.5 million violin in a subway station. They didn't expect him, so they didn't recognize him, and they didn't listen to him. And people didn't expect to see God in a diaper. No one expected a baby to be born to peasants. It wasn't even on their radar. And in a town like Bethlehem, which was nothing more than a wide spot in the road, and many missed it. There's two main gospel accounts of the birth of Christ, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And if I were to briefly give uh, a summary or the differences of these two accounts, Luke is the kind gentle, homey, pastoral one. There's a lot about Mary and Elizabeth and the shepherds and Simeon and Anna. They're older and weaker members of society. Luke is softer. Luke shows the beauty of humility. Matthew, on the other hand, is turbulent. His focus is on power and kings and Herod and the Magi or Maggie, uh, leaders of society. You had to be here last week. (laughs) Uh, There's conflict and anger and murder and scheming and deception. Matthew is much harsher. Matthew shows the ugliness of power. But what's common to both of these accounts is the majority missed the birth and who Jesus was. God came disguised, a Stradivarius by a trash can. So we're going to look at Matthew's account today, and we can divide Matthew's account into basically Matthew 1 and 2 into two parts. Matthew 1 deals primarily with the identity of the Christ child. Who is this baby? Why the big deal? And Matthew 2 deals primarily with the reactions to him, and there are many. In Matthew 1.1, Jesus identified five ways. In Matthew 1, 
in one one is just three ways. But most people miss it. But three of them in the first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. First identification, Jesus Christ. Now, God had promised a Messiah, a Christ, centuries ago who would be strong enough to save Israel. Israel had struggled most of their history. They were weak. They didn't have a lot of economic power, little political clout. And now they were under the thumb of Rome. And the mindset at that time was the only way, the only hope would be a supernatural act of God. It was not humanly possible for Israel to save themselves. For Israel to conquer Rome would be like Haiti conquering the United States. It's just not going to happen. And for Israel to become what was promised in the Old Testament would take a supernatural being. And this Christ, this Messiah they were waiting for was in a way like a superman. So he is Christ, which means he is powerful. Now, I'm intrigued by Superman and some of the other superheroes, especially my generation, like Aquaman and Wonder Woman, and my favorite, Underdog. And the concept behind all of them is that regular human beings are unable to deal with these evil forces. Our problems are too big. Crime and evil, terrorism, we can't handle it. And our only hope is some outsider with superhuman power save us. You know, the old Superman shows with strange alien from another planet. In other words, we need someone from the outside who's powerful. And Matthew said, this baby is the Superman we've been waiting for, the Christ, the Messiah. He's powerful. Now, he'll use his power in a different way than you'd expect. But only an alien with supernatural powers can solve our problems. Would you agree? Only an act of God. Second identification. He's a son of David, which means he's an eternal king. God promised that David's kingdom would be established forever. His throne would rule for eternity. And this son of David would set up an eternal reign where peace, justice, and prosperity would rule. And someday the lion would lay down with a lamb. There'd be no more war or sickness. He is the king. His domain is the the world and the universe. And his reign is eternal. There'll be no more presidents. There'll be no more debates, no more Congress, no more dictators. He will reign. Third identity, he's a son of Abraham, which means he is a universal blessing. God promised to Abraham that through his seed, all nations would be blessed. There'd be universal impact, not just blessing and hope to Israel, but to all people. Now, today's lore, Santa Claus is the universal blessing. He brings gifts and joy to children all over the world and kind of a prototype of Jesus who is the real one who brings gifts and joy to the whole world. So in Jesus, the promise to Abraham is fulfilled. Well, after the first verse, there's a genealogy. I want you to skip that for now. Go down to verse 20 where the angel announces the birth to Joseph. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary your wife for your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Fourth identity, he is Jesus, which means he will save his people. The word Jesus means God is salvation or God saves. And Jesus saved people several ways. He saved from physical danger like storms at sea. He saved from disease and sickness. He saved from infirmities like blindness, lameness, deafness, from evil forces like demons. He saved from death and he raised people from the dead. And he does all those in his ministry. But the central saving action of Jesus, according to the text, he will save people from their sins. That's because our biggest problem is not disease or physical harm or crime or economics or war or even death. Our greatest problem is sin. Superman cannot solve our main problem. Neither can Santa. Superman can save us from physical danger. Santa can give us gifts, but they can't save us from our greatest curse. 
at the core of everything that's wrong is sin. Politics is really not the problem. It's the sin in politics. And the economy is not the problem. It's the sin in the economy. And marriage, your marriage is not the problem. It's the sin in that marriage. One of the slogans we hear this time of year, Jesus is the reason for the season. I would edit that a bit and say, you and I are the reason for the season. It's our sin. That's why Jesus came. Now go back to the genealogy. There's some interesting characters. Verse 2 says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now Perez and Zerah were twin boys born to Tamar back in Genesis, I think Genesis 37, and they were the result of Tamar's incestuous relationship with her father-in-law when she dressed up as a prostitute, tricking him into having sex with her. It is a sick sordid story. If you want R-rated stuff, read that one. This is part of Jesus' heritage, these sick perverts going on. And Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rohab, Rahab. I had to practice all that, by the way. And Rahab, you know, remember, some of you, is a, she was a prostitute and a pagan out of the book of Joshua. And then Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba committed adultery with David, led to the murder of her husband. If you go down to verse 10, Manasseh is one of the most wicked kings in Israelite history, even sacrificing children. Other kings are mentioned that are unfaithful. These are sinners. If this was Santa checking his list, checking it twice to find out who's naughty and nice, these are naughty, not good people. I saw a t-shirt once that said, Dear Santa, I can explain. Well, this genealogy lists Jesus' people. And Jesus came to save his people from themselves and their sins, to save you and I from our sin. The fifth identity, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is here today in this room. He is with you wherever you go. Heaven is wonderful, and what makes it wonderful? It's just God's presence fully, finally, finally consummated. Revelation 21 says, Now the dwelling of God is with his people, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's one thing to have God for us. It's another to have God with us. If he's for us, he can still be a spectator off in the distance, cheering for us and pulling for us. You know, he's on our side, but he's still up there in the stands. But God with us, he's in the game with us. In the Holy Spirit, he's actually in us. Jesus said, I am with you to the end of the age. And the disciples went through some pretty bad stuff. And you may be going some pretty bad stuff, but Jesus was with them, and he's with you. That's why we celebrate Jesus. Christmas. He's the Christ. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus, Emmanuel. He's powerful, eternal king, universal blessing, salvation, and he's with us. And I want to say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you, Jesus. And then in Matthew 2, we have reaction to this child. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from, to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Skip down to verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. When they'd heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The first reaction, you don't see directly, but it's in there implicitly, is ignorance. Jesus had been born perhaps a year before this time, maybe even up to two years. And no one in Jerusalem was aware of it. Uh, Apparently, not many anyway. They had God five miles down the road in Chestnut, and no one knew it. It's like a professional violinist playing a Stradivarius in the subway. Who knew? There's still ignorance today. Many really don't know who he really is. Another reaction, of course, by the Magi is worship. If Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfillment of Abraham and David and the Savior of the world and God with us, the natural reaction is to bow down. Matthew really wants us to focus on Jesus. When you look at Matthew's account, there's really nothing about Mary. Very little about Joseph, really not so much about the Magi either. The important thing when you read through Matthew's account is who Jesus is. He's central to this story, and worship is a main theme in his account. Now, Christmas, we don't always focus on Jesus. I read a survey of Americans, and the headline read, Few rank Jesus' birth top holiday focus. Now, that's not surprising, but here is the clincher. Fewer than one half who identify themselves as Christian. Only 37% of Christians said Jesus' birth is the most significant aspect of Christmas. Most popular answer was family. And very often family is what we worship. I don't get upset when I hear businesses, you know, saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, you know, taking Christ out of Christmas and all that. For the majority of our culture, that's just the way it is. Christmas is not about Christ. And when Christians complain, we look whiny. So what if Starbucks doesn't put any Christmassy stuff on their coffee cups, you know? We should be more upset that people pay $7 for a cup of coffee. That's the sin. You remember a few years ago when Christmas fell on a Sunday? Uh, In fact, it's going to happen next year again. And someone told me, I was in Rockford at the time, said, you just watch, Mark, some churches in Rockford will cancel service. I said, no way, no way. He was right. There was churches in town that canceled Sunday worship for Christmas. And I thought, now let, let me get this. We churches preach about the true meaning of Christmas, make Christ central, so we're going to cancel worship because it lands on a Sunday. Did, it, did I miss something? Even in church, it's easy to lose the focus. The Magi bring gifts to him, we bring gifts to one another. At Christmas, it's the only birthday party, you know, where everyone except the birthday boy gets a gift. This year, Americans will spend an average of $882 per person. Multiply that by a family of four. If you've got a family of six, you're in big trouble, you know. I mean, that's a lot of money. It sounds like a lot to me anyway. And I'm not so sure it's evil, but giving to Jesus, I don't think goes up that significantly at Christmas time. Church offerings, benevolent might increase some, but part of it's for tax purposes. And I want to just want to challenge you that the best gift goes to Jesus. And it doesn't have to be to the church, to a missionary, to a family in need, where need is. 
Our reaction to Christ should be worship, and part of worship is giving. It should be a natural reaction. He gets our best. Then verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, was in a furious rage, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the wise men. Children killed. Another Sandy Hook. Genocide. Third reaction is hostility. Christmas isn't about nice, sentimental, syrupy, gooey feelings. Especially in Matthew, babies are killed. In Revelation 12, we have Christmas, I call it from God's perspective. A woman is clothed with the sun and she represents the people of God and she has a crown of 12 stars on her head and she is pregnant and it's symbolic of the people of God giving birth to the Messiah. And then this enormous red dragon shows up with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his head. With a tail, he swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them. They're showing he's a frightening monster. But he's cast out of heaven down to earth, and the dragon stood in front of the woman who's about to give birth so that he might eat the child the moment it was born. The child is swept into heaven and the heaven protect, to be protected. So the dragon turns his energy on the woman, the church, and attacks her. And he chases her around, and she sprouts wings like an eagle and flies away out of the dragon's reach. And she's protected from the dragon. It's just a crazy story. And then the dragon spews water out of its mouth to overtake the woman and sweep her away. But the earth helps the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river. Just this big battle and war in, in heaven. Eventually, the dragon is fully defeated and cast out of heaven. That's the story of Jesus. Not the typical pastoral, sweet kind of way, you know. I would love one year for kids' choir to do Christmas according to Revelation. A dragon with seven heads and ten horns. I could see some of your kids doing that very well. <laughs> the first reaction to the birth of Christ is not Christmas carols. It's a war, hostility. And both Revelation and Matthew showed powerful forces on earth opposed to grace. Herod will use all his might to get rid of that child, and the dragon's going to try to destroy him. There's always been hostility to Christ. Why are we surprised today? Psalm 2 says, Why did the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers together against the Lord, against his anointed one, against the Christ. Hostility is a very real reaction. And then there's a fourth reaction. The people of Jerusalem and the leaders, I think representing the majority. In fact, verse 3 says, all Jerusalem was disturbed with Herod. They were not disturbed because they liked Herod. They were disturbed because what this could mean from Herod. I mean, it might mean more cruelty from him. He was a bad man. So the whole town is wondering, okay, what's going to happen now? And it's interesting, when the Magi ask where Jesus is to be born, the people know the answer. They quote the exact verse. But you don't see anyone from Jerusalem running to Bethlehem to check it out. The fourth reaction is apathy. The Magi are searching. They travel days, probably hundreds of miles to seek the Savior. They're foreigners, but the people of God won't go five miles down to Bethlehem. Foreigners are overjoyed. The people of God are disturbed. All they're concerned about, well, what's going to happen to me? The Magi bring gifts and treasures. The people bring nothing. That's the majority reaction, apathy. C.S. Lewis in his screw tape letters, the devil tells Wormwood, his apprentice, I will always see to it there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, is to provide me with people 
who don't care. So there's two major forms of evil, hostility and apathy, Herod and the people, and I'm not so sure that apathy isn't the worst. Some are ignorant, some worship, some are hostile, some don't care. And you will fall into one of these four categories. Worship means we bring gifts to Him, not just family and friends. It means spending time with Him in His Word, getting to know Him in a better and richer way, committing your life to serving Him. He is the Christ, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, Jesus, Emmanuel, powerful, universal blessing, eternal King and Savior who is with us. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this gift, the gift of your Son, and thank you for the Christ, the Messiah, Emmanuel. We celebrate today and we rejoice, and we are filled with thanksgiving. And I pray, Lord, that may this be a time of worship, a time of making you first. Lord, this is a time for other things, family gatherings. This is a time for gift-giving and music and singing, but I pray that first we will worship you and give our best to you. In Jesus' name, amen.